The thing about getting a Spotify wrapped at the end of the year is it's total inescapability. Every time you open the app on your phone or on the computer, it just wants to tell you, hey, hey, guess what? I've got this whole story to tell you about what you were listening to and what you cared about and what you were obsessed with. Don't you want to see? Don't you want to know? Of course, you don't want to know because the algorithm, the data, has these facts about you that really interrupt your own personal mythology about who you are. You think you're one kind of person who listens to only the coolest, most obscure indie music that tells a certain story about who you are and what you like and what you care about. And then there's the reality, the track that you played over and over and over again that you completely thrashed, that became your number one song of the year. And you go through the Spotify wrapped and you find out, oh my God. It turns out I'm not the person I thought I was. It turns out I'm this person. It turns out I listened to a track from 2015 made by an indie band from Liverpool so many times that it outdid even the Taylor Swift that I was listening to. I thought I was better than that, but I'm not. I'm aware that not everybody listening has Spotify. If I were explaining Spotify wrapped to my dad, I would say, so it's like somebody's keeping track of all the CDs that you have in your car and how many times you um, put them into play and then how many times you listen to them all the way through. And then if you go back and listen to the same song again, it keeps count of that. And then at the end of the year, it tells you, hey, you listen to Gregorian Chants volumes one to four more than anything else this year. Your top artist is Gregorian Chance. Anyway, it's very irritating. When I was down in Tassie the other week, along with that McCubbin book, the Australian poetry anthology with the McCubbin picture on the front and the Charles Harper poem at the very start, I found this book that I just leapt on. I grabbed off the shelf. It is... It's faded, it's battered, it cost me, I think it's got a green sticker here, I think that means it cost me $2. It is a book from the Sun Poetry Series called Australian Poetry Now. It's edited by Thomas Shapcott. It came out in 1970 and it is an absolute treasure of a thing. What is it about St. Helens, Tasmania? this tiny little coastal town. Who lived there that had this amazing poetry collection that I am gradually buying up? But yeah, this thing is an absolute treasure. So the back cover of this beautiful book reads, Discovery! Exclamation mark. The young poets of the 70s in an anthology which covers all forms of writing currently being published, from poetry which maintains and extends the more generally recognized traditions to experimental work in visual and other forms. 
Thomas Shapcott is acutely aware of trends and inclinations of Australian poetry today. He has had four major collections of verse published and was co-editor of an earlier anthology of poetry. Of this volume, he says, it is difficult to avoid the feeling that Australian poetry is now witnessing a genuine breakthrough into entirely new territory. So I had never heard of Sun Books. They were based here in Melbourne. They published another in this same series, the Sun Poetry series, earlier in the same year. That was called Modern Australian Poetry, edited by David Campbell. They were a force to be reckoned with. So when I looked up Sun Books, I came across this amazing Wikipedia history of what it turns out was a really important part of Australian literature and publishing in the 60s and 70s. Sun Books was an Australian publisher of paperback books founded in Melbourne in 1965 by Geoffrey Dutton, Max Harris and Brian Stonier. I don't know who Brian Stonier is. Max Harris was the editor of Angry Penguins when the Ern Malley affair broke. So he is um, clearly re-establishing himself, working with these other two guys, making this imprint. Uh, it goes on to say, Sun's three founders were all former employees of Penguin Australia who, having grown frustrated by the latter's tepid interest in homegrown content, had resigned in order to establish the imprint, envisioned as a publisher of, quote, quality paperbacks for the sophisticated Australian reader and a platform for local literary talent. Prior to its acquisition by Macmillan in 1981, Sun had published over 330 titles, of which 187 were first editions. Sun Books published The Tyranny of Distance. They published Ginsberg and Ferlinghetti for the first time in Australia. They published this selection of poetry from Papua New Guinea in the early 70s. They published Chris Hemmonsley Selected. They published Drug Poems by Dransfield. In the introduction to this anthology that I have, Australian Poetry Now, Shapcott describes Dransfield as being a poet who comes terrifyingly close to genius. At the time Shapcott was 35, Dransfield was 22. Okay, so this is Shapcott in the preface. For the first time since the early to mid-40s, when Angry Penguins and Bajai, I have no idea what Bajai is, but sure, when Angry Penguins and Bajai made youthful sorties upon middle-aged-minded conservatism, young poets are rejecting and rediscovering, making loud claims for themselves and their ideas. Their presence already troubles the weekend calm of the established journals. And then he says in brackets, who give them a pat of apparent recognition, which they hope will keep them in order. And in the areas of their own activities, they spawn innumerable broadsheets, underground pamphlets, mini mags collated with love, hope, energy, and amateur duplicators. Some of these magazines are given away, some are offered for sale, such activity in Australia is without real precedent. It is certainly remarkable. And then a little bit later on in the preface, he outlines his approach here of asking the poets not just to submit poems and biographical statements, but also to talk about their poetics, their approach to poetry. So he says, poets have been asked to provide their own biographical and poetic notes. This is something of an innovation, at least in Australia. Some poets decline to give any extended statement, claiming the poems must stand for themselves. 
others with equal validity, launched into entire manifestos. As might be expected, the results are variable, but I believe the poets themselves are in a unique position to throw illumination upon not only personal, but current and general poetic concerns. By attempting to define for themselves what are their own poetics and values, they help us also to understand and sympathize. Not just because of bloody Spotify wrapped, but because it's the end of the year and uh, my birthday and Christmas and New Year all kind of come in a row for me. Um, I never really handle December all that gracefully. And lately I've been thinking a lot about the stories I tell myself, my own personal mythology, because I have some stories that I tell myself about myself that are pretty deeply ingrained. And lately I've been wondering whether some of those might be totally wrong. And when I was looking at this anthology and reading these young poets, youngish poets, ranging between early 20s to early 40s, reading their descriptions of themselves and their approach to poetry, there was something really moving about it. These poets starting out telling themselves a story about this is who I am, this is what I'm doing. And me, 50 years in the future, picking this thing up out of uh, the shop that I got it from, is it's kind of a coffee shop, it's kind of a bookshop, it's kind of open some of the time. Uh, and yeah, I think I got three books for $12. I, I can see the gap between who these people said they were or thought they were at the time and who they ended up being. So this is Chris Wallace Crabb, age 35. His description of his poetics is just a couple of lines long. He says, after stoical formalist beginnings, I seek a poetry of romantic fullness and humanity. I wanna see how far lyrical Dionysian impulses can be released and expressed without a loss of intelligence. I liked this one too from a guy called Leon Slade, who I'd actually never heard of. Leon Slade at this point is 38 years old. And he says, I started writing late in 1965. So he's been writing for four years at this point. I started writing late in 1965 and what I admire, attempt and intend has changed radically in those few years. The consequence is that my first book, has very little in common with what I admire, attempt, and intend today. However, I greatly admire Eliot, Lowell, and Plath, and my intentions and attempts are generally today to pass on feelings. That is, not express feelings, but to express myself so that particular feelings are re-aroused. The most any writer can offer a reader is himself, and that's what I offer in my poetry. It's a pretty fine distinction not express feelings, but to express myself so that particular feelings are re-aroused. Okay. The first poem here by Leon Slade uh, is titled Homage to a Homosexual. Also included in this anthology is the 39-year-old Bruce Dore, the very same. His description of his poetics is so weird. <laughs> he says, 
To be wrung by the immeasurable meaning of life is, I think, one of the constantly reoccurring experiences which most people have, however dimly. Okay. All right. Moving on. To express something of the ringer's wry music has been my aim, although it amounts at most to little more than the sound a button makes as it is detached from a shirt front by the rubber rollers. No idea. No idea what he's talking about there. And then the last line is, confronted by the immensity of the thing, one could hardly do less. Okay. Thank you, Bruce. Um, we will be in touch. Of course, if you go to any secondhand bookshop that sells poetry in Australia, without fail, you will find a copy of Bruce Dawes' Sometimes Gladness, which I haven't read. <laughs> I know people who have read it. Uh, I have nothing smart to say about it except for the fact that it is, uh, it must have sold just just thousands of copies. Uh, it was probably on a high school reading list or something like that. But of all the poets in this in this anthology, I guess by by sheer sales, Bruce Dorr would have to come out on top. I don't know all the poets who are collected in here, though. There are a lot of names that I don't recognize. I don't know if that is because they're just somebody I haven't read yet. Entirely possible. It's also possible that even though at this point in 1970 they were canonized, they didn't actually remain part of the canon. I like this one by a poet called R.A. Simpson, uh, who at this point is 40 years old, just because it's, it actually does describe an approach to writing poetry, which is not the case for a lot of these. So R.A. Simpson writes, my poetry has moved from a preoccupation with formal neatness toward experimental regions where language is stripped of its inessentials and where form is far more malleable. I have always thought of myself as being a visual writer, that is, a person who finds satisfaction in the image. My recent experiments in concrete poetry are a byproduct of this. So that's cool, like that makes sense. He started writing in form and now he's getting a bit closer to concrete poetry. Makes sense. Understood. Uh, very, very short one from Alan Riddell, 42 years old at the time. Alan Riddell is a concrete poet and his three poems are very, I like them a lot. I particularly like this one called The Affair, which is just... It's just a square block made up of the letter I and that gradually is replaced by the letter U and then the letter U sort of fades out and it becomes the letter I again. I don't know, describing concrete poetry is hard, but uh, maybe I can put a picture of that in the show notes. So Alan Riddell writes in response to this question about poetics, Unfortunately, I'm very tired and exhausted at the moment and don't think I will be able to focus my thoughts closely enough to supply a piece on poetics. So I don't know if he agreed to have that included or if Shapcott was just being a bit of a bitch and was like, okay, so that's your, that's your poetic statement. Um, thanks, Alan. We'll use that. 
but I mean, come on, imagine corralling all these people. What a job. Okay, and then I did also very much like this one. Uh, Richard Packer, at this time, age 34. His biographical statement alone is great. He says, born 1935, lives in Sydney, was originally a New Zealander for which he apologizes, has worked at a variety of jobs and is now self-employed in advertising for the freedom's sake and the money. He does not apologize. And then the, the poetic statement is, um, he starts out by saying, what the hell do you think you're doing? I always respond with panic to that question because it reminds me unpleasantly of how little I really know about anything, including me. And then he has a couple of paragraphs where he sort of does take a stab at describing what he is doing, but it's, it's all a bit vague. I don't know if I'd waste your time with it. Towards the end, he says, I began writing in anger. I now believe protest in its usual form is about as effective as putting a common ointment on a syphilitic rash. What is needed is genuine inner understanding, a green shoot to break a rock. I am trying to devote myself to furthering this, but God help me, I am only a man. <laughs> Three parts lunatic, one part Yahoo, and one part potentially human. Because of all that is above, I try to write in a language that men ought to speak. If anyone wants to make a poetic out of all this, they are welcome to try. I have not yet done so. Oh, he sounds like just, you know, just a barrel of laughs. Like, yeah, a very relaxing person to be around. It is a guy-heavy selection. Out of the 64 poets collected in this anthology, there were nine women included. And I only really knew two of them, Judith Rodriguez and Vicky Viticus. I think this is a very sane description of a poetics from Judith Rodriguez, who at this point was 33. She says, I respect the exact word. I don't mean a writer should avoid being suggestive, only that he should know precisely how much he wants to do and do just that. The poet should, I think, reach out to all experience and all kinds of men, but I find this demand difficult to satisfy in my work. I would be a public poet if I could. Australia is a good place to write in just now, despite its isolation, because anything alive in Australia is involved in desperate reassessment. Excellence may be foreign to our ethos, but while there's life, dot dot dot, I like her uncertainty. It sounds like she's being honest, which a lot of these people really don't. <laughs> the presses are rolling on Australia's first national Sunday newspaper. The newspaper is one more link in the vast chain of a rapidly expanding newspaper, television and publishing empire. The man sitting on top of this empire is Rupert Murdoch. At 40 years of age, fast becoming as influential and powerful as fellow colonial newspaper tycoons, Beaverbrook and Thompson. I'm not ashamed of any of my newspapers at all. And I'm rather sick of snobs who tell us that they're bad papers. You do have a reputation of being a fairly ruthless boss. Now, um, just how ruthless are you in your own opinion? I don't think I'm ruthless at all. And uh, I think that's entirely um, something that's painted by people like yourselves. In some articles, they've called you the Australian Amazon. Have they ever? Have they really? Yes, <laughs> in, in the Life article featuring your career. Well, that's pretty pretty dreary article. I can just imagine them using some tired old phrase like that. 
They probably think all Australian girls are six foot tall and deep-chested and all that. But the Premier himself has a personal interest in the development of the state's coal reserves. No, I think you, you, can, you shouldn't say a thing like that. You, I have no coal interests. All my family have no coal interests. I don't know what makes you say you ought to withdraw that. I, I, I wouldn't threaten you with a writ, but, but you shouldn't say it because it's not true. Let's go to Vicky Viticus, 21 years old. She writes, It is impossible for me to write a poetic. I ended up with something so small it was ridiculous and not relevant at all. My poems are my poetic. I cannot see it as a separate thing. And the listing of a few poets I like and, or, and autobiographical details seem relevant and statements within themselves. And those poets that she lists further down are Ted Hughes, D.H. Lawrence, Sylvia Plath and Gunter Grass. So that was Vicky Vidicus at 21. Judith Driscoll, who I don't know well, um, wrote this. On Poetic, all I can say about poems as I conceive them is this. I am interested in the processes of the prolific metaphor, identity made in the perceptions of the more numerous and enlarged senses. I don't wish to present a directive for reading my poems, which could be misleading. Although my poetic and critical faculties might carry on a sporadic affair, they are destined, alas, never to marry. And her um, biographical details, she writes, I was born and raised in and around a small country town. I love and use the country, as I do sex and politics, for example, as raw material for the human. I have two daughters. I am 22 years old and presently doing postgraduate research in English literature at the University of Newcastle. I believe in the poems, not the poet. Okay. She knows what she's about. She's 22, she has two kids, and she's doing postgrad. Of course, when you find an anthology like this, where you have poets at a particular stage in their career actually talking about what they're trying to do, the main thing you want to look at is the big names, the poets who went on to have a very definite, very loud and obvious personal mythology. What did they say about themselves back in 1970 when they were when they were young poets. Okay, so look, Les Murray, age 31 at this point, wrote a very long response to this question about his poetics. And I'm just gonna read a little bit of it here. The last section, basically, he says, I long with fondest irony to see Australians escaping in ever increasing numbers out of tired old modernity and its little snobbish streets, not toward the past, but towards futures which have no existence until we discover and settle them for our own good and the whole life of mankind. Along with a steady love of facts in their wonderfully various service to God, this is the main drift of my work at this stage in its development and is the nearest thing to a statement of intentions as I want to make just now. Okay. <laughs> Love of facts and their wonderfully various service to God. I don't know what he's doing, really, having read this, but, um, but Les Murray certainly does. He knows what he's about. And look, 
I didn't realize this until I looked at this anthology, but he had already written by the age of 31 the poem An Absolutely Ordinary Rainbow, which has got to be like up there with, you know, the like one of the best poems that an Australian poet has written, I think. Uh, I'll probably get notes about that, but that's, look, I'm putting it out there. I think it's an amazing poem, like a truly incredible poem. Got to give the man credit where credit is due. Uh, let's go to Robert Adamson. Yeah, you know this is going to be good. So Robert Adamson is 25 <laughs> at this point, and his poetic statement um, is, yeah, He's just, it's, he's so in it, like it's so immediate. He's so part of the scene. Uh, he says, I started writing around about three years ago. I had to settle for my blonde goddess on the rebound from Bob Dylan. No, not sure what he is talking about there. I was a bad folk singer and with Dylan my hero, it was hard to delude myself for very long. From references in Dylan's songs and poetry, I studied poets like Blake, Coleridge, Poe, Dylan Thomas, Gascoigne, and other English post-symbolists. I am interested following Eliot's earlier direction. I think that might need to say I'm interested in following Eliot's earlier direction from his LaForge devices, replacing conceptual thought and patterns and straight syntax with music and images and tenuous syntax. By juxtapositioning, <laughs> by juxtapositioning, images systematically and ordering sounds into music so that control over the senses is never lost in obscure subjective impulses. Wow, Robert Adamson really is very 25 right now. This type of poetry, this, this type of poetry is at its height in Francis Webb's latest book. The poems from the, the section Ward 2. Oh my God, Robert, what? Why? You're doing a book review now? Stay on track. The poems from the section Ward 2 did something to me when I read them that is inexplicable. Now his collected poems as a whole remains the most beautiful and profound poetry I have read. Wow, 25 years old. Okay. Um, Tranter, John Tranter. So John Tranter's, John Tranter's poetic description and biography is like a list. Born 1943 Kuma, worked at truck driving, milk bar attendant, art gallery assistant, clerk, printer. Sydney Uni, architecture, arts, dropped architecture, at present completing arts degree. Overseas, lived in England for a year, hitched overland through Europe and Asia, have been writing for 10 years. And then poetics, respect two things in this order. One, vision. You have to be born with it, also have to cultivate it. Two, technique. The better the technique, the better the vision is given form and body. Also, perception is an active process. Also, Einstein was right, relativity is. John E. Tranter, age 26. Let's hear from the editor himself. What did Thomas Shapcott have to say about his own poetics? Because he included his own poems. Always seems like a bit of a weird move to me, but hey, that's, that's what he did. Thomas Shapcott, 34 years old at the time, he says, 
I believe poetry is a movement towards celebration. Just as living, which is also dying, is a celebration, so the pain is purified, the loneliness made to hear that there is no silence. Oh boy. Um, we cannot outstare the sun, but it is not in our nature to endure the darkness. Thus, all true poetry is in some way a form of experimentation, a groping outwards. Even the earth is moving. How can we stand still? Look, I think really, <laughs> I don't know. Is that just a way of saying, um, I don't have an answer to this question? <laughs> okay, and I do, I do have to read this one. So Michael Dransfield, 21 years old, supplied this statement about his poetry. Believe poetry is the only truly portable art form, pen and page. For me, to be a poet in Australia is wonderful and scary because poets in this country are the salt of the earth and the scum of the earth and just people too. Poetry is what I feel and cannot write, but only approach a little because what I feel is inestimably more than I could get into words. I operate on feelings, not thoughts, but this is not enough, not poetry. And this is why Roger McDonald's The Best of Us, I don't know who Roger McDonald is. This is why Roger McDonald's The Best of Us, because he gets inside external subjects and knows them. And we, reading his work, know them too. I'm the ghost haunting an old house. My poems are posthumous. Roger McDonald, is he in this? Oh, he is. Okay. Roger McDonald. What does he have to say for himself? Okay, here's a, here's a Roger McDonald poem. Bachelor Farmer. At half past five, the earth cooling, all the sweat of his shirt soaked up in red dirt. He tunnels his arm through the weight of a bag of wheat, slowly withdraws it, and sees how the yellow grains shiver as though magnetized away from his skin, each one alone and trembling. Walking beside the fence in another paddock, he discovers a grain caught in the hairs of his wrist. He bends down, allows it to fall, and with the careful toe of his boot, presses it into the ground. Sleeping all night sprawled on the veranda of his hut, he wakes to the call of the pallid cuckoo, its blunted scale, low on the heads of unharvested wheat. Not rising towards him, not falling away, but close by, unchanging, incomplete. Yeah, that's really nice. Really nice. Okay, so that was that was Michael Dransfield's favorite poet. Favorite Australian poet, maybe. A lot of the poems left me really confused, a little bit cold. Some of them I knew already. But this collection of people, this group, they're not a generation above, but they're, yeah, they're like a, they're like a decade ahead of the point where I feel like Australian poetry swerves in a direction that I can start to follow it. But there was one poem in here that just really, really hit me. This is David Maloof, 35 years old at the time. I love this because he's just... <laughs> Unlike so many of the others, it just 
It feels completely honest to me. I don't really have a poetic, I think. The kind of poems I like best are not always the kind of poems I write, though of course one gets no extra marks for enjoying other men's gifts and scope. I do feel strongly, however, that poetry should be rooted in human expression, that its only real interest for us is what it has to say about such ordinary things as love, deaths, politics, the seasons, etc., and the sense it gives us of another human voice. I'm not much attracted by the idea of the poem as object, and all talk in verse about poetry itself, other poets, the poetic vision, the poetic process, etc., leaves me cold. It seems to me to claim a special importance for the poet that I don't want to make. No prejudices about language, except that it be rooted, as far as possible, in the world of ordinary objects. None at all about form. I, yeah, this is really only a first looking into this anthology, but when I was leaping through it, this poem of David Malouf's just leapt out of me. It's called The Comforters. The time comes at last to quit old comforters, tin drum and tantrum, the worn teddy bear we lug into exile with us, a woolly paramour. We're older now. We sleep alone, or two by two, with a jigger of neat whiskey to float us off, fool's gold to stop all hurts and hollows, toothache, heartache. Now all the dolls are real. If we prick them, they weep, real tears, and no kisses stitch their wounds or staunch their terrible howling. There are no sawdust brides. When I was five, I traded a milk tooth to the dark. All night on the window ledge, it angled in a tumbler for sixpence, solid moonlight. Now, real gold plugs the nerve. Alive in the dead of night, it kicks and jabs. Gold flickers like lightning in my jaw. These days, a whole zoo roars in our arms, under the covers and still the old gap throbs. So David Maloof is now 89. I've never actually met him properly. I have been in the same room as him. I have been at Sappho's when he has been at Sappho's. And when I first moved to Melbourne and I was making my first really fearful moves towards engaging with this thing that I cared about so much, engaging with poetry, I took my copy of Earth Hour which is, I guess it must have been his 2011, 2012 collection. I took it with me to work, and when I got to the office, I would sit down and try to read it for five minutes. <laughs> That's all I could stand. Uh, and then I, then I had to retreat back into the world of work where things made sense and I could, I could actually operate as a functional human being. To a person... Anyone who has ever spoken to me about David Maloof has said how kind and gentle and decent he is. And I can't say that about every poet who I've mentioned in this episode. But the thing is, when this anthology was published, pretty much everything was ahead of these people. The big successes and the big heartaches were yet to come. I'm going to read this poem one more time for you so it sticks in your mind. 
The Comforters by David Maloof. The time comes at last to quit old comforters. Tin drum and tantrum. The worn teddy bear we lug into exile with us. A woolly paramour. We're older now. We sleep alone, or two by two, with a jigger of neat whiskey to float us off. Fool's gold to stop all hurts and hollows. Toothache, heartache. Now all the dolls are real. If we prick them, they weep real tears, and no kisses stitch their wounds or staunch their terrible howling. There are no sawdust brides. When I was five, I traded a milk tooth to the dark. All night on the window ledge, it angled in a tumbler for sixpence. Solid moonlight. Now real gold plugs the nerve. Alive in the dead of night, it kicks and jabs. Gold flickers like lightning in my jaw. These days, a whole zoo roars in our arms, under the covers. And still, the old gap throbs. Yeah, God knows I was not writing anything like that at 35. Before I sign off, one of the things about uh, Spotify Wrapped is if you are, if you're a podcaster, if you have your podcast on Spotify, you get a podcaster's Spotify Wrapped. And I approach that thing with, with as much dread, if not more, um, as I do the the personal, here are the songs you were listening to, Spotify Wrapped. But uh, yeah, I... I was actually really moved when I went through, when I finally sat down and made myself watch it. The thing is, like, it won't go away, right? You have to watch this thing. Otherwise, it's going to sit there for God knows how long. You have to look at it. But, yeah, I was really, I was really moved. It's quite different to what it was like a year ago. I mean, I'd only just put the show up on Spotify at that point. So, yeah, but but still, right, like, the fact that this is the top show for a bunch of people that's crazy. That's so like, wow. (laughs) Thank you so much. I don't, I really obviously don't know what to say about that. Um, I know that half the time this show is interviews and the other half, it is some weird mix of like me, uh, thinking too hard about something or trying to make, um, some bizarre semi-poetic soundscape for you. And I'm sure it doesn't always work, but the fact that you keep trusting me and you keep listening, it just means so much. The thing that I did want to mention is that um, it shows you which episode got shared the most. And it turns out that the episode that people sent to other people most often was the first part of John Forbes' A Pastoral. That really got me. That really got me. That means so much to me. If you want yet more Alice Allen, uh, I am I am over on Slee Ricketts for the last, not the most recent episode, but the two before that. Uh, one of them is me talking with Matthew about Maggie Milner's sensation couplets. Uh, I do not manage to get through that conversation without being quite nasty. And 
then there's also an episode with me, Matthew and Brian talking about being being middle-aged and being bored and being lonely and uh, and how they how they approach that with their kids and how my mum approached that with me. And uh, yeah, so if you wanted to hear a little bit more of me chatting about stuff, I mean, those guys are amazing, obviously. You should listen just for them. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I could tell you, like, I listened to this song this many times because I thought I was going to use it for the Dido and Aeneas episode. And I thought it was going to make this amazing outro, but it turns out it just didn't work at all. I could tell you that I was listening to it for research, but that is not true. <laughs> I just, I just love it. I just love it. This is who I am. I am a sweet tooth, trash bat, hop fanatic. That's who I am. Tragedy.